News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Hour number three. Underway. It's the Pete Callender Show. I'm Pete. Welcome. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate it and letting me hang out with you. 704-570-1110. 1-800-WBT-1110. Those are the phone numbers if you would like to uh, join in on the program here. And uh, I've got... Man, okay. So... I watched, okay, I didn't even watch it. I listened to The Potato and Brian Stelter. CNN, reliable sources. I still, I'm kind of ticked off that he has that that brand. Because that was Howard Kurtz's brand. Reliable sources, CNN, the weekend show that looked at media and coverage and that sort of thing. And how he was way better, is way better than The Potato. But uh, it was a CNN brand. And so when Howie went to Fox News... Stelter gets the brand. And uh I will say he he does he does hold true to the name of the show being reliable sources in that he is reliably talking to the same sources. Reli- like Brian Stelter is a reliable water carrier for legacy media. He does not deviate from a protect the precious posture of media. So there was a very, very interesting discussion that I thought might've broken out. I thought maybe this is the blind squirrel finding the acorn moment for Brian potato seltzer or sorry, Stelter. I thought maybe it could have been a, a, a moment, but no, he had on his program, the executive editor of Politico, a woman by the name of Daphna Linzer. Daphna Linzer, okay? And the premise of the interview was to go behind the scenes. Take us behind the scenes. Tell me about the moment reporters got... So this is his question, okay? Tell me about the moment reporters got the opinion. Walk us through. Tell us about that moment. Not really a great question, but fine. You want to set it up this way? Okay, great. He's setting it up. But let's begin by going behind the scenes of the Politico bombshell that started it all with one of Politico's top editors, Daphna Linzer. She is the outlet's executive editor, and she's with me now. Daphna, tell me about the moment when you found out that your reporters had obtained this draft majority opinion. What happened? Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, you know, they were working very hard, our reporters, Josh Gerstein and... um Alex Ward to try and confirm uh, what they had and to try and understand it. And uh, our role was to kind of help them and support them so that they could verify the information, understand the context in the moment, as you said, uh, and then get ready to publish. Oh, God. I mean, I feel like I was there. Oh, my gosh. Riveting. She should be a professional storyteller. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe an editor of some kind. Ooh, maybe an executive editor. And she really delivers on the insightful, compelling content here. Tell me about the moment reporters got the opinion. And her answer is they were working hard to verify and understand the context and the moment. She talks like a like an HR executive at a DEI seminar. Seriously, like this kind of language, this in the moment, and to really understand the context and understand the moment. Oh, my God. People think their feelings are paramount to everything, it seems like. 
Sorry, it's a different topic. Let me, I'll get back here. All right, so she says, we were trying to support our reporters while they were trying to verify and understand the moment, which is not actually an answer to the question of, tell me about the moment. But she hears the word moment and thinks, we really need to understand this moment. Okay, so now, first off, like, yes, it's kind of annoying to me, but okay, well, tell me about how you, quote, understand the moment then. If you're looking for this kind of uh, uh, context around the moment, trying to understand it, what was the debate about? What was the discussion? Tell me what was on the table. So he says in the follow-up question, Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you had a brunch with Politico and like we were all there and you knew this was going to publish and you didn't say anything. How hard was that? Not really kidding either. That's what that's the question. It seems to me there was a several day process. I know you're not talking about the timeline in detail, but the White House Correspondents' Dinner was this time last week and Politico had a big brunch this time last Sunday. And when you were there, you knew this was in the works. Is that right? You know, it was a a kind of extraordinary moment that we were gathering sort of in person for the first time uh, with colleagues from uh, across Washington to celebrate uh, the First Amendment, uh, which is what that dinner is really about. Um, We did publish uh, the next day, uh, the next evening, uh, Monday evening. There was just a few of us uh, in the newsroom that evening. Uh, A lot of people still working remotely. Uh, So it was uh, it was quite a moment. Man, like information overload on all of this vital detail. I can't even. What is the point of this interview? Seriously, what is the point of this? I think I know why his ratings are very, very low. I think I'm starting to understand. All right, so then he gets to this next question. To me, this was like the best question. He didn't ask. I'm not saying it was a good one. I'm just saying it was the best one. It came the closest to actually getting at the topic that I was most interested in, which is what was the internal debate around publishing the story about publishing the opinion that you had gotten from months prior could have changed. But why would you do this? What was the assessment? What was the analysis? Okay. He asks, did you hesitate for a moment? Did you all ever hesitate about publishing? In other words, was there ever a scenario where you would not have published a story about this draft ruling? I think for us, Brian, there were just two two issues for us. is the document authentic? Do we understand it? And is it in the public interest? Once we knew it was authentic, we knew it was in the public interest and we were ready to go. That's it. That's all. Two issues, she said, but then she actually named three. But she said two issues. Is it authentic? Do we understand it? Is it in the public interest? Okay, well, what, what was the discussion? When I mean, yes, obviously, you said you got it authenticated, so it's authentic. Fine. Do we understand it? I don't see how you could not understand it. It's a legal opinion, fleshed out, and got lots of citations, so I'm thinking you understand it. And then, is it in the public interest? Ah, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear about that debate. Was there a debate? She doesn't say. But she says something else later on in a different question.
News Talk 1110 wbt The executive editor of Politico, woman by the name of Daphne... Sorry, I did not mean to assign a gender. Although, wait a minute, it is about the abortion debate, so I think I can call her a woman. I don't know, I'm not a biologist. Anyway, this person, maybe a birthing person, not sure. Daphna Linzer. She spoke to CNN's Potato on his show, Reliable Sources, about the publishing of the leaked draft of a Supreme Court decision appearing to overturn Roe v. Wade. She was asked by the potato, did you hesitate for a moment? And she said, no, we only had two issues. And then she named three, two issues. Was it authentic? Which we confirmed it was. Do we understand it? Which I guess they feel like they did. And then is it in the public interest? And then she offers no explanation about that analysis of whether it was or was not in the public interest. Unless, of course, she doesn't offer any kind of explanation because she just assumes, oh, absolutely, it's in the public interest. Because we should know what they're doing. We should know what they're talking about. So because it's such an obvious answer, she doesn't feel the need to actually answer or provide the analysis, right? All right, so then later on they go, all right, so they, then they go into different areas. Uh, she talks about the seasoned reporters. I think it's like with Lowry's or something. Um, she talks about uh, understanding that moment was key to understanding where the court was at the time we were ready to go. See what I mean? Like these these phrases that meant to, des- uh, meant to convey uh, empathy or something. Or like this this level of knowledge. Here's the thing. If you got to tell me that you're trying to understand the moment and all you can talk about is understanding the moment, that's like literally the phrase you keep using, you're actually conveying to me the opposite because you are unable to articulate what the moment is. You're just saying, I'm trying to understand the moment as if that is in and of itself the end goal. No, the purpose is to go through the process the analysis, what is the moment? What is the public interest? What is the newsworthiness, the value? Is it news? The primary question that you should be asking. Because part of that analysis is, does it harm? Does it harm people? Does it harm institutions? Does it harm the civilization? Does it harm whatever? That has to be part of your analysis. Then he was. Then she was asked by the potato, "Was the reaction um, as intense as you expected?" That is a worthless question. But she did, in her answer, say, "We knew it was an unprecedented peak inside the Supreme Court, the least transparent of the branches." Asked about whether they've been contacted by the uh, any investigators looking into the leaker, she said no. But then there was this. The potato asks, will this be the new normal, the leaking of draft opinions? Do you think this will be the new normal? Yeah. So when we talk talk about how media covers really fraught topics such as abortion. The oh, way hang on a second. That's not her. Where's for? Oh, I hit the wrong clip. My apologies. 
Will this be the new normal? It's hard to say. I mean, we, we, I'm not really in the prediction business. Um, we did publish, uh, on the night that we published the story, uh, Josh Kirstein had a really important accompanying piece looking at the history of leaks uh, at the Supreme Court. Never one quite like this. Uh, but certainly there have been sort of tea leaves and leaks in the past. Um, I do think that the public, again, you know, has a... St- a very clear right to know about what's happening. And uh, I don't know how that's going to impact the court and, and how it proceeds going forward. Interesting. So she says the public has a right to know what's happening at the court. So I guess we should be, we should be seeing all of the drafts, right? Hearing all of the, the debate among all of the jurists. Right. All the justices. We should see all of their internal communications, all those emails. We should see them. Right. We should see all the drafting. We should be able to interrogate all of the aides, all of the the clerks and stuff. Right. No. Right. No. Yes. No. What? But also, more importantly, she says we're not sure how it's going to impact the court. Oh, that's helpful to know. So I guess that was not part of your understanding the moment. Huh? You didn't. You didn't stop and think, hey, what kind of long-term impact do you think this has on the court? Because that's the first thing that everybody said after you published it. So what was your discussion about that? Well, she just said, we don't know. So you went ahead with it anyway. Not knowing the harm you could be doing, you did it anyway. Was that discussed? See, these are the questions I would have asked if I were, you know, a potato with a CNN show. Which is pretty remarkable that potatoes get shows nowadays. It really is. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, The Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. So, uh, yeah, and thank you for the email. Dennis, he says, a suggestion for Brian Stelter's, Stelter's name, his nickname, would you consider Taterman? Taterman. No, I think we just, um, I was trying to get people accustomed first to the potato, because I like I don't want it to be lost when I shift here into the abbreviated nickname. It's just Tater. Is that so? That's that's what people call him on Twitter. They call him Tater. But it comes from the fact that he very much resembles a potato. So we'll we'll start using. We'll shift now, Dennis, to Tater. Uh, that's who we're talking about, Brian Stelter, Tater. So. Tater brings on the Washington Post media reporter, Elahi Izadi is her name, Elahi Izadi. And he asks her, which again is a pretty remarkable thing to see a talking potato. Just like we really should be in awe of what CNN has been able to accomplish with this program. So uh, he says, uh, you wrote about the power of language in the abortion fight. Ugh. The power of language in the abortion fight. Also, a podcast about that this week. Just as a side note, this is why these this is what makes these people so insufferable. It is, they are just insufferable. They call themselves nerds. So, like, 
the White House Correspondents Association, the big dinner that they do, and they, you know what they call that, right? Nerd prom. That's what they call it. Nerd prom. First off, I went to prom. Actually, went to two proms. I went to prom, and yes, that was a humble break. And <laughs> um, nerds were at that prom, too. I mean, hello, I was there. No, I'm kidding. I wasn't really a nerd. I was, I, I don't know. I, I kind of moved among all of the cliques, except for a couple of them. But there were all these different cliques in high school, and I kind of, I knew people in all of the different cliques. And yes, I knew some of the people that were like heavy nerd, nerd clique. And I, I had friends over there. But I had successfully kind of navigated my way towards other cliques as well. And so I could hang with all these different groups. And then I kind of hooked up with the, the guys that, like, once I got into my safe school, I said, which was Winthrop University, I said, okay, well, I, I know where I'm going to college. Now I'm just going to basically take the second half of my entire senior year off and drink underage. I'm terrible. All right. So all right, maybe not the best advice. You do not do that. But anyway, that's what I did up on Long Island. Not a lot to do. Not a lot to do. We shot a lot of pool, too. Went to pool halls, that sort of thing. Anyway, I object to the term nerd prom because nerds were at prom. Nerds could go to prom. Prom was for everybody. Your nerd prom, that's that's an attempt at a humble brag. You're trying to convey the false notion that you're smart, and you are not smart. Nerds are smart. You're not. You're media. Call it media prom. I don't know. Call it narcissist prom. You can call it anything else. But I think it's an insult to smart people to call what your White House Correspondent Association nerd prom. No. But this is what they think of themselves. They think they, they think of themselves as wordsmiths, yet they consistently and constantly pick terrible words to describe things. And they pretend, well, I, I didn't even know. Or maybe it's not an act. Maybe it's not pretend at all. Uh, I didn't know. Did I use the term Republicans pounce like every single time I talk about Republicans? I didn't even notice such a thing. Republicans seized on something. Wait, why, why are you laughing? Do I say seized a lot with regard to Republicans' reactions to things? So Tater asks, sir, you wrote about the power of language in the abortion fight. Also a podcast about that this week. The power of language. What do you mean by that? Gee, Tater, I don't know. Is language a powerful thing or not? Let's listen to her answer. It's hard to say. I mean, we... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so when we talk talk about how media covers really fraught topics such as abortion, the way in which it's framed, even the words that we use to describe any side of a debate are really consequential. So when it comes to abortion, for many years, the media adopted the language and nomenclature of pro-life, which was something that activists on that side of the debate really wanted to be cast as. Um, But, you know, this week I uh, had a podcast episode with with my colleague, Margaret Sullivan, who's a media columnist, and she made the point that when we we talk about pro-life in those terms, then what is the opposite side of pro-life? Anti-life? And, you know, a lot of media organizations, mainstream media organizations in recent years no longer use that language. They use um, abortion rights or anti-abortion rights language because they say that that's more precise to what we're talking about. Can you believe they're still talking about this? Didn't we have this debate like a decade ago? 
like for real, like uh, like if they're gonna say they're pro life, like but then what does that make us? That makes us like anti life. Well, I'm not anti life. I'm just trying to kill these children. I mean, why do you have to call me anti life? So we don't like that. So like we really need to be sensitive to how we're framing this, and not just adopting what the activists want. So uh, we're gonna go with the abortion rights and anti abortion rights. Because that's not bias at all. Of course it is. Wouldn't it be pro-abortion and anti-abortion? Wouldn't that really be the more accurate description? No, Pete, because people aren't pro-abortion just because they're pro-choice. Okay, well then, stick to pro-choice. You're pro-choice. Just leave it at pro-choice. Why do you got to make it abortion rights? See, because they're trying to work the, this, this term rights into the nomenclature. She's pretending like she's not engaging in the very thing that she's engaging in and criticizing. She says, she goes on to say, still, that language is still quite common. And it uh, partly has to do with how we all allow or how we allow people when our sources uh, uh, that are our sources. Sorry, this is I'm reading the transcript here uh, to define themselves. You know, we do refer to people and how they like to be referred to. But it does shape our understanding of what this issue is really about. Wait a minute. Stop the presses. You mean to say that if I come up to you and I say, I want you to refer to me as a certain word, that there may be some other impact that you going along with my request might have? Really? So let's just say I come up to you and I want you to call me, oh, I don't know, a different gender. You going along with that has some other impact. It shapes our understanding of what the issue is about, does it not? You just said this sort of thing does. Oh, but on that topic, you are trying to shape understanding. This is how the left uses language. That's really what he brought her on to talk about was how, hey, everybody, we need to get on the same page while we're trying to manipulate these these words and the debate to understand the moment and to understand how language informs us of this. Jay wants to know how in the world... Did I hear about Winthrop University being from Long Island? Jay says, I grew up in Atlanta and I knew nothing about Winthrop until I moved here in 1994. Uh, Winthrop was on a, uh, from what I was told, and I don't know if this is true, but from what I was told, they were on a big recruitment kick to get people from out of state to attend the college. And so they recruited heavily from uh, the Northeast because Winthrop was a very much a suitcase college. When I got there, it was. Every, I mean, on the weekends, everybody was gone. It was, I mean, it was cleared out. And they had set up the schedules so you could basically get all of your classes in Monday through Thursday. And so Thursdays at, at Winthrop on in Rock Hill, Thursdays were the big party nights because – Everybody went home on Friday. There's the basketball team was terrible. There's no football team. The you know the town was not big, and at that time Charlotte was 
I mean, the joke up in Charlotte was you could, you know, roll a bowling ball down trade and try on and not hit anything after 530 because the whole place cleared out. People used to go from Charlotte to Rock Hill because the bars were open later as a private club. So um, Winther was on a big recruitment kick. I took the PSAT and did well on it. But I took the PSAT a year younger than everybody else. I was part of some, uh, I don't know, guinea pig group. I don't, I don't remember. They, but they, they picked some of the kids out of the school, and they're like, "Come take the PSAT." But we know you're, was it like you take it normally in eleventh grade? But we, I took it in tenth. I think that was the deal. So I took it in tenth. Then the scores, something happened with this. I don't remember. So. All of a sudden, I start getting all of this mail from colleges. And, you know, as you are known to do when you're pursuing college, you start getting all of the mail. I guess, well, I don't know. Do you get mailers anymore? Does that stuff still come in the mail? You just get email. So, yeah, they sent me something and they were like, hey, we saw your PSAT score. If you want to come here, we'll waive your out-of-state tuition. And you just pay in-state rates. And at the time, Winthrop was the cheapest state school in South Carolina. Now, by the time I left, it was like the most expensive. I had nothing to do with that. I swear. It's not my fault. So as long as I kept the 3-0, then I got the out-of-state waiver. And I did keep the 3-0 for like two and a half years. And then I buckled down, and but it was too late. I missed it by like, I got a 299. Yeah, that hurt. 299. Well, because I mentioned what I was doing in my last half year of high school, it it did kind of come over. And especially in the first two years, I'm taking all these classes that I already took in high school. So it was, I I got very bored. Anyway, it's all coming out. Uh, Yeah, so that's how I ended up. And that was my safe school. And I got into, where else did I go? Uh, Or uh, James Madison, but they offered no money. So I couldn't afford to go. Very expensive. Um, I did try to transfer and did to College of Charleston at one point because um, my brother graduated at the Citadel. was going to move down there, went to transfer, got it approved, and then he got a job transfer because he had graduated and I was going to live in his apartment with him and that would have probably been the worst decision. We probably, I never would have graduated uh, and probably would have dragged him down with me. But, uh, you know, so the, uh, and so then I, I, I stayed at Winthrop and finished out the uh, the degree there. Anyway, so that answers that question. Yeah, they offered me a bunch of money. And let me see here. Oh, I got to get back to this audio. Oh, my gosh. All right, so back to potato. Tater. Sorry. Back to tater. Brian Stelter is interviewing as part of his deep dive on the uh, the Politico backstory and how they got the document, which we didn't hear, and and. The debate they had about whether to publish it, which we didn't hear, but just that they were like really in the moment, trying to understand the moment. So then he brings on Elahi Izadi, who is the Washington Post media reporter. And Stelter says, Americans don't know much about abortion. We media, wait for it, right? You know what's coming. We haven't educated everybody enough. 
That's really the issue here. And those activists know a lot about the subject. They are deeply invested. But many Americans do not know the details. Let me show some uh, points made by Amelia Thompson DeVoe of 538. She said, Americans' views on abortion are confusing because they don't know much about it. They don't know how pregnancies progress. They don't know when abortions happen. They don't know who gets abortions. They don't know what will happen in their state if Roe is gone. She went on to say, Americans don't know much about this because they don't like to think about it. They don't like the politics. They don't like the debate. I thought that was really spot on. People don't like to think about something like this. And a lot of folks don't frankly know the details about reproduction and about reproductive rights. Tater, dude, a lot of people do know how this works. But now reproductive rights. See, he's using the nomenclature that those activists want to use. But again, it's always with the media. It's always the same way. It's always we just haven't done enough to educate you. Because then you would agree with us. And the fact that you don't agree with us means you're ignorant, right? But get this. Cue Bill Maher on his weekend program. Real time. All right. So uh, people hate talking about abortion. So let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do it, but it's the big issue. And we got to do it. And this is what happened. And, you know, it's interesting because until this memo was leaked and we found out that now, unless something we very unforeseen happens, the Supreme Court is going to undo Roe versus Wade after 49 years. We haven't really been focusing on it or maybe I'm projecting. I guess I haven't been enough because I learned things this week because this put it on the front page that are pretty basic things that I did not know about abortion. Like in Europe, the modern countries of Europe, way more restrictive than we are or what they're even proposing. If you are pro-choice, you would like it a lot less in Germany and Italy and France and Spain and Switzerland. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's right. Okay. Um, I I learned most people who are pro-life are women. Did not know that. Amazing what they don't know on a topic so vital. Winterbull coming up next. Don't break anything while I'm gone.